That was my book I was selling like that. Um, actually, Ed tells me we got a lot of your books over here and they're not selling that well. And so tomorrow night after the meeting, he says, we're going to open up the ABC next door, especially to get rid of your books. So I'm heading over there to sign books tomorrow night right after the meeting. Hope you'll join me. Well, by way of hands, how many of you were at the Atlanta General Conference this year? A few. How about the uh, last one in St. Louis? All right. Toronto. All right. It was the Toronto GC. Friday evening, I was sitting up in the third section of the Sky Dome there. Not many people in our section at all, except my brother and me and a lady down about 10 rows in front of us. When along came an old friend from college who I hadn't seen for years we started catching up, much to the chagrin of this lady sitting down in front of us, who turned around and with venom in her voice said, Shh, <laughs> I am trying to listen to Elder Melashenko. And I apologize. I said, I'm really sorry. So we stopped talking for a while. Uh, And then we started whispering very, very quietly because we hadn't seen each other for years when Mrs. Bionic Ear down in front of us turned around again. This time she really went ballistic. I told you, boys, please, would you be quiet? Shut your mouth. I'm trying to listen to Elder Melda Shane. Sorry, sorry, sister, sorry. That's why I asked if any of you were there. So if I recognized you, I wasn't going to tell the story. I I had another story, but I didn't recognize. I know it wasn't the Biggers, and I'm pretty sure it wasn't you, right? So we were quiet, and then I heard the sweetest sound, saw the sweetest sight, imperceptible to the untrained eye and ear, but I'm telling you exactly what I saw. I noticed this lady's head started bobbing. And then I heard. Her snoring was disturbing to me because I was trying to listen to Elder Melashen. Co. So I said in my low-key sort of way, I just said, shh, which jerked her awake. And she jerked awake and turned around and said, no, you, shh. So here we are back and forth. Shh, no, you, shh, shh. It was messy, messy, messy. Now, the woman had every right to expect us to be quiet. I am the first to admit, and if that was somebody here doing this, You are absolutely in the right. I'm all for people being quiet when somebody's trying to preach. But it struck me. Isn't it interesting how you can be a real angry, judgmental, critical, unloving person and still be a member in good and regular standing of the Seventh-day Adventist Church? Have you ever thought of that? In fact, sometimes I think it's those of us who hang around the church the most who perhaps are the hardest on people and the most impossible to get along with. 
This is certainly the case in the story I invite you to consider with me tonight. A warning. The religious folk don't look real good in this story. John chapter 8. If you have your Bible, we're just going to work our way through the story and then at the end make a little application and we'll be done. John chapter 8, one of my favorite stories in the Bible. We begin in verse 3. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. Notice this is the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the religious people who are about to chew up this woman and try to spit her out. God have mercy on vegetarians who eat people. (laughs) They made her stand there before the group and said to Jesus, teacher. This woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. And they were right. The Mishnah clearly stated that she should be stoned. The Mishnah, the Jewish codified law. In the case of adultery for a man, this is what the Mishnah reads. It says, in the case of adultery, the man is to be enclosed in dung up to his knees. And a soft towel set within a rough towel is to be placed around his neck in order that no mark be made for the punishment is God's punishment. Then one man draws in one direction and another in the other direction until he be dead. So they were right. The law was clear. This woman should be stoned. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis For accusing him because at last they got this itinerant Jewish preacher trapped because no matter what he says, they got him. If he says stone her, he's going up against the Roman law. He dare not do that. But if he says don't stone her, then he's pitting himself up against the Jewish law, the law of Moses. And he definitely can't go there. They finally got him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. I have to tell you, when I first discovered this verse in the Bible, I had never heard of it before. In fact, somebody at breakfast mentioned, I remember seeing on TV you telling that story. This is the story. I tell it a lot. It's kind of becoming my signature story because I love this verse. I was a junior in Academy, Newmarket, Virginia, very small town at Shenandoah Valley Academy. Now, you wouldn't think that a junior in high school could find much trouble to get into in a small town like that, right? Right? Night before home leave, word got out, big party going down up in Nestler's room. I didn't want to miss out on the fun, so when the lights went out, we snuck up, walked into his room only to discover that they had transformed their room into a candle-lit casino. The agenda that night, penny poker. Not condoning the behavior, I'm just telling you a story. I will tell you, I'd never played poker before in my life. Uh, Maybe that's why parents invest a lot of money to send their kids to conservative Adventist academies so they can learn some of these essential (laughs) life skills. 
Now you call it fate, call it luck, call it whatever you want. All I know is by three o'clock in the morning, I was sitting behind a mountain of pennies. I mean, I was really, really doing well. And I still, years later, remember wondering, does God expect me to pay tithe on my windfall? (laughs) One of those ethical questions that Academy juniors sometimes struggle with. Well, by three o'clock in the morning, we were getting hungry. But in a town the size of Newmarket, you can't just order in a pizza to be delivered. You have to be a little bit more creative. So a couple of guys suggested, I know, let's Raid the cafeteria. Everybody was doing it in those days. So a couple of guys snuck out of the dorm, raced across campus, let themselves in through an open window. But when they got inside, they heard the most unusual sound. (sighs) Peeking around the corner in the pantry, there they discovered the vice principal, Mr. Strickland who was sick and tired and fed up, no pun intended, with these kids breaking into the cafeteria and stealing food. He was determined to catch the culprits. The only problem, this really wasn't his spiritual gift. He was much too heavy of a sleeper to pull off this sting. So while he snored, they literally passed chocolate eclairs right over his nose. Doritos, Apples, sandwiches, it was a feast to defy the senses. It was beautiful. They even blew him a kiss goodnight. (laughs) Years later, I ran into Mr. Strickland and I asked him for permission to publicly share the story. And he smiled at the memory and said, you tell the story all you want and you use my name. I don't care. Then he offered this postscript. By the way, Hafner, you realize, don't you? You boys would have never been caught had you just kept your big mouths shut, which I'm sure is true. But come on, a story that good, you don't keep it to yourself. Told a few people, told a few people, told a few others. Next thing we knew, we were all sitting outside of the principal's office waiting our turn one by one to go in before the disciplinary committee. Nessa went in, I went in, Kevin went in, everybody went in. Last guy to go in was Jeff Greenberg. After he shared his rendition of the story, Principal leaned forward on his mahogany desk and peered over his glasses and growled, Is there anything else, young man, that you want to tell us before we punish the whole lot of you? And it was in that moment that Jeff quoted John chapter 8, verse 7. Let he who is without sin (laughs) cast the first stone. I'm told the boys dean, John Nafee, maybe some of you know him. He's down at Loma Linda University now. He literally fell off his chair. He was laughing so hard. And they let us off with very minor punishments. And ever since, I've just loved this verse. (laughs) And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground, verse 8. What do you suppose he wrote? Well, of course, the tradition has it that he actually started to sketch out the sins 
of the accusers. And there is evidence for that in the original text in that normally the word to write is graphian. Here it is catagraphian, that is to write against someone. We don't know exactly what he wrote, but he wrote something against someone. At this, it goes on to say, those who heard began to go away one at a time. And then this really intriguing detail to me, the older ones first. In other words, it was the spiritually mature ones. Those who had served as priests the longest, the most holy ones, began to slink away first. I connect with that detail of the story because... I understand that. The obsession with image management, with wanting to look spiritual, trying to be a good pastor and a holy person, but knowing the twisted motives and the ego, the pride that clouds so much of what I say and what I do and the darkness that dwells within And the older I grow, the more I am aware of that. It's interesting, at breakfast this morning, somebody asked me about a quotation in the great controversy where Ellen White suggests that uh, at the lake of fire, uh, those who are the worst sinners are going to be uh, tormented and tortured, kind of proportional to how bad they were. There's a statement like that. And one fellow pulled it up on his iPhone and I read it and I really didn't know how to respond to that. I've never really read it before that somehow the real bad people are going to burn a little longer than those who weren't so bad. And we talked about it and I didn't have any good explanation or answer for it other than to say, you know, it's interesting that perhaps we'll be in for a real surprise because we just assume that the pedophiles and the murderers, they're the ones who are going to burn the longest, according to this. But maybe, based on a lot of statements in Scripture, it will be the real righteous ones who are filled with pride, ego. The Bible has a lot to say about pride, gossip about the more acceptable sins, but maybe they're not as acceptable to God. I don't know. It was the older ones first. They began to go away until only he with Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Now, we miss a little something here in the translation because this is a very endearing way to address this woman, same way that Jesus would address his own mother, as if Jesus actually knows and loves this woman. A very tender way to address this lady. Woman, where are they? It's like he knows her. We live in such an impersonal era these days. Oh, companies try to make you think that they know you and care about you individually and personally, but we know better. 
I got a piece of junk mail a while back on the outside in large font. It said, at last, Carl Hafner, a Visa card especially designed for active young women just like yourself. I'm thinking they don't know me all that well. It's like Jesus knows this woman and he loves her. The old story you probably heard, but I love it. That of a devout Christian university professor teaching at a state college. He tried as often as he could to share his Christian beliefs with the students. But, of course, he had to be careful of that because of separation of church and state and so on. Oh, one afternoon, he engaged the students in a conversation, throwing out the question, how do you suppose thought leaders would have responded had they seen a prostitute? He went down the list, Mahatma Gandhi, Confucius, Muhammad, and so on, until he got to the thought leader he really wanted to discuss, Jesus. How do you suppose Jesus would have responded had he seen a prostitute? Kid in the back of the class shot up his hand. Sir, we'll never know. Oh, I beg to differ with you, countered the professor. Actually, he said, there's a story. John chapter eight, the story we're looking at together tonight, where Jesus actually did see a prostitute. To which the kid responded, oh, I'm well aware of that story, sir. But do you really think when Jesus saw that woman, he saw a prostitute? Oh, heavens, no. He saw a valued child of the father. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Well, of the many, many lessons that we could pull from a classic story like this one, let me give you three and then we'll be done. Number one, we must value all people. If we are serious about lifting up Christ, what that means in a very practical way is that we lift up all people as if we were Christ. Christ loved all people. Pharisees had no time for this woman. She was nothing but a piece of meat bait to get Jesus. That was it. But in the way Jesus interacts with her, it's clear he really loves this woman. Oh, we must be careful, church, that we do not judge people and discard people. Every person matters to the father. Every person. Some years ago, something came up, so I didn't get over to the Y at noon, as was my routine, to play with some of the business guys in the community. We like to play basketball, but on this particular day, I didn't get over there until about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. All of the business leaders in the community that I knew, they had left, and the gym was overrun with kids from the local high school. I don't know if you've hung out with high school kids recently, but I was a bit shocked. Just by how they looked and how they played. 
how they dress. And there was this one kid with bright green hair and about a dozen earrings. And I found myself thinking they really need to be careful. This is a brand new why. And if they're not a little bit more discriminating who they let in here, it's going to fall apart. This is a nice health club. That night I was working on my computer, writing a sermon, actually, when the telephone rang. An unknown voice queried, do you know where your wallet is? I said, yeah, it's right. And I asked, do you know where my wallet is? He said, yes, I um, found it in the parking lot at the Y. I said, oh. That's got everything in it. My schedule. It's got my uh, credit cards, my money. I've got to get it. He says, well, maybe we could meet tomorrow and I'll bring it over. I said, not tomorrow. Is there any way we could meet tonight? I'll come to your house or whatever. And so he said, sure. I was kind of watching the NBA finals. But uh, if you really need it that desperately, I'll meet you down at such and such a blockbuster in the parking lot there. And I said, I'll be there. When I drove over there, it occurred to me, how am I going to even know who this guy is? Maybe he'll be waving my wallet or something. Well, when I pulled into the parking lot, I had no problem figuring out who it was. And you know who it was, too, don't you? He was easy to spot with that bright green hair and a dozen earrings. I thanked him profusely insisted on giving him some reward money, saying this is a very honorable thing that you did. Thank you. Thank you. Here, let me give you something just as a small token of my appreciation. And he said, oh, no, no, no. He just flatly refused any reward money at all. But I kept insisting until finally he just put down his foot and he said, listen, I would never take a penny for doing the right thing. As I drove out of the parking lot, it was one of those Holy Spirit whispers. Maybe you've had one of those, too, where it was as if God were saying, oh, be careful. How you judge people. We're called as Christ followers. To value all people as children of God, no matter what they look like or act like. Every person matters to the Father. Second suggestion that I would pull out of the story is that we are called to value relationships above rules. Pharisees had all of their rules, and of course, there is a place for rules. There's certainly a place for rules in the church and church discipline. I'm a believer in that, but never outside of the context of relationship. And love, whatever discipline we meter out in a church context, always has to be bathed in love. Because ultimately, the relationship is what matters even more than the rules. Once upon a time, there was a town that prided itself on having rules and regulations for every imaginable situation. There were rules that governed what plants you could plant in your garden at what time of the year, where you could go in the city at what time during the day. Everybody knew the rules. Everybody followed the rules and everybody was happy in this little village. On Monday, Wednesdays and Fridays, the mayor worked on taxes and nothing else. 
Shopkeepers sold their specialty wares and nothing more. The village women would sweep a certain section of the sidewalk each day and they would sweep no farther. Everybody knew what was expected. Everybody lived by the rules. And everybody was happy. Then one day, an old man who was both blind and moot hobbled into town on a crutch and plopped himself down on the park bench in the center square. He was wearing an old, tattered army jacket, a relic of a war long past. Immediately, the housewives were abuzz with gossip, wondering, where did this man come from, and who is he, and who's supposed to take care of him? As morning wore into afternoon, it became evident to all the people in the village that he truly belonged to nobody. And the townspeople were stumped because they didn't know whose responsibility this man was. Many people suggested he ought to go to the nursing home. Nursing home said, we can't take him. He needs medical attention. Send him to the hospital. Hospital said, he's clearly a vet. Send him to the vet's hospital. VA hospital said, we couldn't admit the man without name, rank, social security number. And that's when the mayor stepped up with great leadership and promised to look into it and have an answer by the end of the week. He promised to form a committee. Only problem with that was that night, a terrible storm blew in from the north, bringing with it howling winds and freezing rains. In the morning, the old man was found dead, hunched over his crutch, looked much like he had just the day before. There was a law in this town that stated in the event of a death that somebody needed to toll the bell, and so they tolled the bell. Another rule stated that the shopkeepers, out of respect for the deceased, needed to close their shops, and so they did that as well. Another law stated that the funeral service needed to be conducted within 48 hours of the death. The only problem, nowhere in their rule book, they find who was responsible for the burial and the funeral service of this man. And for the first time in the history of the town, people started working together without any regard to rule or regulation. The shopkeepers built a beautiful mahogany casket the ladies of the town draped his lifeless body with clean, cool white linens and gently lowered him into the casket. The mayor volunteered to present the homily at the service. It was a stirring message indeed. He ended by challenging the townspeople. In the future, he said, let us sacrifice rules if we must. Instead, of people. Oh, how I long to belong to a community of faith that really lives out this love of Christ. We lift up Christ to the degree that we love and lift up people. 
You remember the statement of Jesus. This is how you know my authentic disciples, John 13. How? It's so simple. They love one another. They love. Back when I got married, my dad is a pastor and my wife's father was a pastor, Clarence Grusbeck. And so we asked both of them to give a very short homily at our wedding service. Well, Elder Grusbeck, my father-in-law, he gave a beautiful homily, although it was a little bit long. Then my father started in. He introduced his homily by calling it the Ten Commandments of Love. Well, the first commandment took his whole allotted time for the homily, and we still had nine to go. After the second commandment, my poor brother, who was my best man next to me, was snapping the smelling salt and nervously shifting back and forth, giving my dad this signal, but he didn't pick up on it. He was just about ready to keel over. By the third commandment, I had grown a full beard. It just kept going on and on and on. Well, after the wedding, we said, Dad, that was really good, but it was way too long. When my younger brother got married... He also asked my father to do the homily, and my dad was honored, of course. But we all warned him, don't make it so long. And so he introduced his remarks by saying, I want to share three suggestions of love. And it was good, but still too long. When my youngest brother got married, we said to dad, make it short. Really, really short. So when my dad spoke for the homily at my youngest brother's wedding, he said, my whole homily is one word, love. That was it. <laughs> love. It was a powerful sermon. I still remember the whole sermon. Love. It's so simple. This is how we know that we are authentic followers of Jesus. We love one another. We value relationships, even above doctrine and rules and dogma. We love. There's power in that. Another old but favorite story. That of the woman who was afflicted with Alzheimer's. Her husband dutifully cared for her in their home for many years until it got to the point where the physician said she really needs to go into an Alzheimer's home. And so he reluctantly put her there. But every afternoon he would faithfully visit her. The doctor said that it would help to stimulate her memory by asking her questions and trying to engage her in conversation. And so trying to do just that one afternoon, the old man took some pictures down from the mantle and started to quiz her. You remember who this is pointing at the picture? She stared. Completely blank look on her face. No. This is our niece, Stephanie. Remember Stephanie? No. 
So he tried again with another picture. You remember who this is? Again, she looked, but no recognition. No. This is our son, Robert. You know, Bobby. Bobby. Finally, he looked her square in the eyes and he said, do you know who I am? There was just a sliver of recognition. A spark in her eye and a wry smile. And at last she said, yes, yes, yes. You're. You're the one. Who loves me? Couldn't remember his name. Couldn't forget. His love. So as a community of faith, we're called. To love, there's power in that. People don't forget our love. So we value people. Above our beliefs, just as Christ loved people. One final suggestion, and that is we must focus on Jesus and grow into his likeness. Just in case I'm making any of you real nervous with all this love talk, like, well, where are the standards? I'll be quick to point out that Jesus calls this woman to a transformed new life. Go, he says, and sin No more. Listen to the commentary from the pen of Ellen White. He says of this, she says of this woman, this was to her the beginning of a new life, a life of purity and peace devoted to the service of God. This penitent woman became one of his most steadfast followers. Can you believe that? With self-sacrificing love and devotion, she repaid his forgiving Mercy became one of his most steadfast disciples. The power of love. And so we are called to grow into the character and the likeness of Christ. Some years ago, a woman approached me in the lobby of our church and said very abruptly, I want to get baptized next week. Well, um. Why don't we meet this week and we'll talk about it? So she came to my office and we chatted for a while. And as we discussed her own spiritual journey, it became clear to me that she knew the decision that she was making and she understood what baptism was about. And so I said, well, I really look forward to baptizing you this week. And as part of that conversation, I said, now, you're going to want to enroll in some of the classes that we offer here at the church that uh, will uh, help you understand your spiritual gifts so that you can be involved in ministry in the church. And she said, I'd like that very much. And as an example, I said, maybe one of my spiritual gifts would be a teaching because it doesn't bother me to stand in front of people and talk. And she said, well, I think that's my spiritual gift, too. Really? Well, then would you feel comfortable maybe sharing your testimony, your story before I baptize you on Sabbath? And she said, I would love to do that. Never really crossed my mind to ask her, what is your story? (laughs) Ever since then, I have always asked (laughs) baptismal candidates before I invite them to share their story, but never really occurred to me back then. 
So, Sabbath morning, we're standing in the church baptistry. I introduce her to the church and say, before I baptize her, she's going to share her story. First thing she said, I grew up in the streets of Tacoma as a teenage prostitute. You could just hear the air getting sucked out of the sanctuary. I'd never seen the saints so attentive, uh, certainly never during any of my sermons. Uh, They just sat there mesmerized like statutes in shock. She didn't go into a lot of the sort of details of her story, but it was really evident that here was a young woman who had lived a very hard life. And she just had so much brokenness and pain, but it wasn't long. And she started to speak about this amazing God who, if he could forgive somebody like her, he could forgive anybody. And so I lowered her into the water. And when I brought her back up, the place just exploded with with applause. Everybody stood to their feet. It felt like for 10 minutes because we had just encountered the living presence of our God. And we were all reminded of his power to transform a wrecked up human life. Well, we had a potluck in her honor, but after a while, I started looking around and asking, uh, where did Crystal go? I hadn't seen her. You seen Crystal? Nobody had seen her. Asked my wife to check the restroom. She wasn't there. I looked down the hallway, couldn't find her. Finally, I poked my head into the sanctuary and I saw her sitting all alone in this big sanctuary up next to the baptistry. So I approached her and said, are you you okay? Oh, yes, pastor. Yes, I've never been better. So what are you doing? Oh, I... I just wanted to watch the water go down the drain with all my sins. Because she said, I can assure you this baptistry will never again hold this many sins. And then she said, maybe you don't relate to this, but do you have any idea For the first time in my life, the first time, I feel clean. She said, isn't our God amazing? I feel clean. Some years later, I ran into her at a camp meeting. She gave me a big hug started telling me about what God has been doing in her life. She said, I actually enrolled in a community college and I got a degree, a two-year degree in counseling. Can you imagine? She said, I didn't even have an eighth grade diploma. I didn't even graduate from elementary school. And now I have a college degree in counseling. And now I'm counseling runaway teenagers like I used to be. It is the most wonderful thing. 
And then she said, I'm volunteering in this ministry and that ministry at the church. And I found that church to be such a loving community. I don't know what I'd do without them, but God has just so radically changed the trajectory of my life. And again, she said, isn't our God amazing? And all I could do was say, yay, God. See, we're all called to grow into the likeness and the character of Christ. And really, her story is the story of Bob and Karen that I shared earlier. Out of guilt, grace, growing into the likeness of Christ. It's her story. It's your story. It's my story. Father in heaven, we're so grateful for the tender snapshots of our Savior that we find in Scripture that remind us of the way you want us to treat others. Remind us of the way you want us to live and grow into your likeness. And so, God, we want to lift you up. Not only by coming together in this context to talk about you, to think about you and to study your word and to sing to you, but we really want to lift high our Savior Jesus Christ, by the way that we live. And so help us now to live as instruments of grace. In the name of Jesus, I pray.